Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 10th of September 2018 and this is episode number 80. On today's programme, I talk to historian Dr James Hurst about his recent book re-examining the Anzac landings on the Dardanelles Peninsula on the 25th of April 1915. This book has been published by Helion & Co. I spoke to James over the interweb from his home in Adelaide, South Australia. Apologies for the sound quality at times during this interview. The connection was a bit weak, but James's thoughts are well worth listening to. James, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. We're going to talk today about your latest book on the Anzac landings during the Dardanelles campaign. Could you start the interview by giving us some background on yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, I'll start by thanking you very much for having me for a start. Um, yeah, my background. I grew up in Western Australia and I studied science at university, but I'd been interested in history and the First World War for as long as I can remember. I remember being home from school when I was very young in primary school and read a book on the Great War, Great War for kids type level, but yeah, uh, who knows where the fascination Let's start by examining why you thought a book was necessary on the Anzac landings in April 1915. Cut a long story short, uh, I remember a photo my grandmother had of some friends of hers who'd gone to the war and not come back, and we found one of these, and it was a, a friend of hers in her front garden in West Perth, which, thank heavens, there was a name on the photo. So I locked this guy up, expecting to find he was in the Postal Corps and spent the entire time in Perth or something, swimming mail. But no, he was a platoon sergeant at the landing. So I set about trying to find out what happened to him, and that took years, by which time I had half a million words on the 11th Battalion at the landing, plus a spreadsheet about a thousand names and various degrees of detail. Somebody said to me, this isn't just a book, this is a PhD, you need to, you need to finish this off. And I thought I couldn't possibly PhD this for smart people. But then ultimately that's, that's what happened. And I didn't expect to come up with anything new. I expected to tell a narrative because uh, Gallipoli Landing is the most well-known military event in Australian history. But when I started getting into it, I realised there's a lot we actually don't know. There's a lot we've got wrong. So ultimately, we ended up with a book. Now, for the Anglo and Western Front centrists who probably form the predominant uh, numbers of this audience, what actually happened on the 25th of April 1915? And can you explain why it's so important? The idea was to try and knock Turkey out of the war by sailing British and French battleships and dreadnoughts and so on up the Dardanelles and appearing off Constantinople, at which point the Turkish government would panic and capitulate. Unfortunately, we did never get through the Dardanelles. Uh, there were a series of mines and ship-based batteries and that sort of thing, which made it far too difficult. So they eventually decided to land troops on the Dardanelles Peninsula to try and clear the, the Turkish forts that had the guns that were causing all the problems. It was actually mines that caused the real problems, but you couldn't you couldn't clear the mines while the guns were there. So they decided to make infantry landings. That's ultimately how it came about. As part of those landings, the British were to make the main ones down south of the toe of the peninsula at Cape Hellas. The Australians and New Zealanders were to land further north up the peninsula, and their job was to cut the peninsula in half, and that was to stop Turkish forces moving away from the British, or worse, uh, reinforcements coming down and intercepting them. So in a nutshell, our, our role was diversionary, partly to confuse the Turks, but also partly to stop reinforcements interfering with the mainlanders, which was the British. So why is this event so important in Australia? We were a newly federated country. We'd only really been a country since 1901. 
And so this, in a way, was our entry to the world stage. That largely is why it took on the, the status that did in Australia. But I guess it's also because of the achievement of blokes leaping out of boats in the darkness and throwing themselves cliffs with Turks firing down on them. Now, the actual amount of fire and so on, as we've discovered recently, was greatly exaggerated at the time. But I guess you've got to think of a young country sending off youngish, inexperienced soldiers to fight on the world stage. And they didn't just sort of gradually go into the trenches like we did on the Western Front and get used to it and learn the ropes. Uh, it was an extraordinarily dramatic assault. Uh, blokes sort of chugging towards the enemy coast in pitch darkness, hoping they're going to get ashore without being seen because the boats were overloaded. The men were overloaded. If the boats sunk, they'd probably drown. Um, and they were sitting ducks and they were just desperate to, to get ashore without being seen. That didn't happen. Very few of them were ashore before the first shot. But when they were put under that kind of pressure, they weren't found wanting. They leapt out of the boats. They were charging at the Turks. And the members of the Royal Navy who had landed them went back to their ships with glowing stories about these these blokes just fearlessly hurling themselves at the enemy. And I guess back in Australia, people would have been so relieved to find out that their um, the young blokes or even middle-aged blokes uh, in their first battle had, hadn't failed and hadn't let the side down and it was the beginning of the creation of a quite extraordinary fighting record. Uh, we went from strength to strength after that. And I guess, uh, and then, the, then of course, there was the appalling casualty rate. We had a shocking casualty rate in the First World War, uh, one of the highest per capita of the British Commonwealth, I believe. And so when there was this terrible loss, like with Ireland, England, and Wales, and Scotland, and South Africa, and Canada, and New Zealand, and all the other countries as well, that suffered terrible losses in that war, the, the grieving, of course, we needed we needed a date to grieve and, and also to pay tribute. Uh, obviously, we've got the length of November as well. And when I was a kid, uh, we used to have two minutes silence on the length of November to, to remember. But Anzac is Anzac Day is started off as being about the 25th of April and that astonishing landing, but ultimately it was about all Australians who served their country in times of war. We have a national holiday for it these days. There are we used to learn about this in primary school, but we learned the same story. We learned about a bloke called Simpson who had a donkey who was a stretcher bearer. And rather than toiling up and down the gullies and hillsides with a, a stretcher, he used the donkey. And because of his unselfishness, he was often shot. Uh, we learned about him. But... So we come to talk about your book, which examines this, this amazing event. What approach did you use to examine the events of that day? It was, it was kind of an accident. Because, uh, as I said, I was searching for one bloke. And then, because I was having so much trouble finding anything on him, by the time I found anything on him, I had half a million words on the whole lot of them. Uh, so I started writing about their role at the landing, expecting to write a narrative. But what was different is, I mean, there are well over a thousand books on Vietnam. Most of them focus on the whole campaign, either the whole Australian-New Zealand campaign in Australia or the whole campaign, including the British and French or whatever. By focusing on one group for one day, We'd spend years and years on it. I managed to get into far more detail than previously, which meant I could actually get to the bottom of some of the some of the stories. Because most writers, there are some notable exceptions, but most just take the existing story and embellish it. I, I guess my approach meant that I could get into more detail and get right down to the brass tacks. Like start with a clean slate. It literally started like that with blank canvas. I'm starting to put little dots in detail on that canvas and then cross-referencing it. And once I started doing that, gaps started appearing in the official histories between various events. So an event that appeared in the official history might have actually been three events. 
And once you started to delineate between them, you could see a gap between them. And then you compare that to another account, and then you compare that to the Turkish accounts, and bit by bit, this sort of picture started to take shape. I started raising my eyebrows and thinking, you know, I really didn't expect to discover anything new, but I really think we've got a case that X happened instead of Y, or X happened differently than we thought. It came about kind of by accident, the approach, but an awful lot of work behind it, obviously, to get that level of detail. If I give one ridiculous example, on a personal level, some blokes said we left so-and-so lying wounded at a particular spot. And I found out, for example, there were two blokes by that in the unit. Well, that's okay. I'll find out which company they were in. Unfortunately, they're in the same company. And unfortunately, they were both wounded on the day. So it's difficult to find out which one was lying in the scrub. But after doing a ridiculous amount of research, because these the two blokes I was thinking of, the witness and the wounded bloke, lived in different places. One lived in Perth, the other lived 400 miles around the goldfields. So clearly, there's a mistaken identity going on there. But actually, I discovered they went to school together. And so they probably didn't know each other. So the pro- bloke was left lying in the scrub and later died. was probably identified as so-and-so. So that's, that's just a personal one. Some bloke who disappeared on the day I've now identified. And I did a lot of that. I devoted a whole chapter to... Um, trying to track down those missing from the landing and trying to identify what actually happened to them. In a lot of cases, I had a lot of success. The unit that you focus on in your book was the 11th Battalion of the Australian Imperial Force, which was an infantry battalion raised specifically for the First World War. Could you tell me about the social, economic and geographical background of the men who composed that unit? Certainly. Like I said, it was a it's just coincidence that I researched them because they were the one that my friend's grandmother's friend was in. The unit was raised in Western Australia. However, about a third of them were from the British Isles because a great many Australian immigrants at the time, or a great many Australian population rather, were from the British Isles. And they were about a quarter of the population as a whole, I believe, but about a third of the 11th were from the British Isles. There used to be a myth in Australia that the reason our trips were the way they were was they're all from you know, strapping farm boys and so on. That's not quite true. 12% of the original 11th, I believe, were from farms, but then another 20% were labourers, a lot of them would have been rural labourers, then another 8% or so were miners, they were pretty tough lot, so a lot of them were actually had associations with the country, others were professional men, uh, the CEO was an accountant, he had a couple of doctors one of them became the medical officer, another was a lieutenant in a rifle platoon, and that's an odd mix, if you're a doctor why wouldn't you be the MO? And uh, you know, this is one of those stories that isn't in any of the books but I managed to contact the family many years later and I said, well, all his friends were going and was determined to go. So if the doctor's position was taken, he was going to be in a rifle platoon. But there were some you know, extraordinary characters. One in particular was a Boer War veteran who had been uh, driving cattle for 12 years and decided it was time to visit the city. He arrived in Perth just in time for the outbreak of World War One, And the stories about him, who's the ultimate cleric and digger, you know, you couldn't invent a character like him, was Professor Pryor. Australian over there said after he read the book, always in trouble. His family told me he's always on the run, either running on the fight or to one. He spent the entire war as a private. They promoted him a few times, but it never lasted. Whereas among the rank and file, he was a, uh, an unofficial, non-commissioned officer in the trenches because he was resolute and been there before. He was the kind of bloke you stick to when, you're, when things are getting bad. And he was always getting a laugh out of, out of people at the expense of officers he didn't respect. There was um, one story that didn't end up in any of the books was that Gallipoli Major Drake Brockman from A Company was briefing his company before an action and doing the obvious thing, which is making sure the men know what they're supposed to be doing particularly if the officer gets killed or indisposed somehow, wounded, whatever. So this is Private Smith, uh, you know, you follow all that, you know what you're supposed to be doing? Yes, sir. So, if I was to be killed, what would you do, Private Smith? What's the first thing you'd do? Smithy says, the first thing I'd do is go through your pockets. Now, that kind of 
behave. He got him kept him in trouble throughout the war, but he ended up the war a private and started a private. There are a lot of characters like that, all different personalities from all different walks of life, all different socioeconomic groups. We even had an American and a Canadian, a uh, bloke born in India, and so on. So what were the objectives of the 11th Battalion on the 25th of April, 1915? The embarrassing thing is that they were responsible for the high ground. Um, 16,000 troops landed that first day, but only 4,000 in the pre-dawn landing. And the 11th Battalion was one of those four companies. It was the 3rd Brigade, provided the covering force, and that was 19, 11, 12 battalions. Now, the first three battalions ashore, the 11th Battalion was responsible for the high ground on the left of the landing, and um, things began to go awry almost immediately. Before we get into the actual detail of what happened, what was the topography and the and the Turkish defences like on the beach? As I mentioned earlier, uh, it, the defences were greatly exaggerated in the popular imagination in this country for many years. The beach was defended by about three platoons of Turks, and a, a, a Turkish platoon in those days was limited up to 90. And there was another platoon further inland, which also joined the fight shortly after. In the area where the Australians specifically landed, that first wave, there was one platoon. And given that the first wave of the covering force was 1,500 Australians, we clearly outnumbered them a great deal. But the topography was very steep, and there's been debate for 100 years about whether we landed in the wrong spot or not. Certainly we landed in the wrong spot as far as the troops were concerned. They weren't expecting terrain, anything like that. And one of them said later, if we tried to do that in training, we couldn't have done it. There's obviously excitement at the moment, as well as fitness and determination from the groups that, that propelled them up the hill. So what did your research uh, into the story of the 11th Battalion reveal about what actually happened uh, against what many Australians believe happened on the day? There were lots, and we obviously can't go through them all here, but just one example of how this how we've been misreading the battle all these years, is that uh, the official history will tell us, for example, that after that we fought, kicked the Turks off that fort, first hill, B and D companies of the little battalion were sent to Second Bridge. He doesn't tell us why. Now, if I, our objectives on the high ground on the left, and yet here we are basically going straight ahead or to the right, I spent a lot of time looking into those issues and did find answers. But more to the point, to find out where this friend of my grandmother was in the battalion should have been easy. I would have thought there'd be battalion roles or that sort of thing. There weren't. And it ended up being a job that went on for years and probably gone to my dying days. If I could come across another account, the first thing I'll do is try and find out where this bloke belonged in the battalion. So it took a, a lot of years of cross-referencing to work out who was in which platoon and which company. And when I'd done that, Simple images such as, simple statements such as B and D companies went to Second Ridge suddenly start to fall to bits. Out of B company, Charlie Barnes, the OC, yes, he went to Second Ridge, as I would have, but his two IC, Captain Tuller, was up on Battleship Hill, which is a couple of miles away. One of his lieutenants, Lieutenant Strickland, was attacking Fisherman's Hut, which is way up in the north. Lieutenant Jackson, another platoon commander, was well inland and fought with Tuller on Battleship Hill. Aubrey Darnell was in charge of the Italian scouts, so he was detached from the company. And the last one, Lieutenant Newman, was fighting in land and spent the rest of the time fighting with the 10th Battalion. So when you think about it, the company consisted of Charlie Barnes. Now, he would have had some of his own blokes with him, but anyone that was with him was by definition separated from their own officer. Similar with D Company. So for the last you know, 10, 20 years or so, historians have been debating the landing and what happened, and the decisions made, that's how things like well, Colonel McLaggen was a fool. He'd already sent 500 men to Second Ridge in B&D companies. Why did he need to send more and, and amplify that for all the other battalions involved? And the reality is because his force was shot to bits. People were all over the place. And how can you fight a battle like that? So other questions that have come about are why didn't we strike harder for our objectives? Well, how are you going to do that? 
if you've got two companies, nearly 500 men, under uh, 10 officers, then you can do that. You can say, Captain Sanso, can you take and hold that ridge? Yes, sir. Get to it. Captain Sanso, can you advance beyond and take the next ridge? Yes, sir. Okay, get to it. And you know you can relax about that part of the battlefield. But if they're scattered as much as I've discovered, then that changes the whole tone of the battle. And that hasn't been seen for the last 100 years. And so that's just one of those examples where looking at the minute detail, my grandmother's friend, who did he belong to, who did he hang out with, where did he go, in you know, almost accidentally led to me having a completely different impression of the battle than I'd always believed. And you could do this, I'm sure, you know, you've got many Western Front historians who do similar things. I've started working on Waterloo recently. Quite a few authors are discovering that it's not as we believed. So you've intimated that the 11th Battalion on the 25th of April failed to meet its, its objectives. What were those objectives um, and why did it fail to, to achieve them? They, they felt the objectives were to take the high ground on the left. We were supposed to set up a covering position, which went for some miles, and they were the battalion on the left. Uh, they didn't achieve it because they were ordered to do other things, and that is a whole separate question. Again, I've just written a paper which involved a lot of head-scratching to try and work out why those decisions were made. But ultimately, they were diverted elsewhere, is the real reason. Uh, some of the Captain Tullock, who was 2ICFB company, didn't hear the orders. He was, he was separated. And so he did strike this objective. He did get there. He did hold it for a while uh, until he was pushed back by the Turkish counterattack. But the mystery is why he wasn't supported. Why, why didn't they send the rest of the battalion after him? And that's where we start getting into a lot of debate about decisions made and, and so on. But um, And that came after my PhD. But I I think we've got some answers to those questions as well. Basically, the force was fragmented, landed further north than expected, and our command were inexperienced. The men were determined, and people ultimately believed that the reason we didn't, the landing didn't fail was because of the determination of the men. There, there's a story in the 11th Battalion about blokes um, on the ridges on the first night. Well, they'd been fighting all day, they were wet, they were exhausted, they were tired. Behind them, the commanders were contemplating evacuation because we had failed to take our objectives and you know, they were worried about the blokes have been fighting all day, what's going to happen tomorrow, they're exhausted. And ultimately they weren't evacuated because there weren't the boats there. But when the troops heard that, they were furious because they didn't feel like they needed to be evacuated at all. They were actually quite pleased with themselves and were determined to stick it out. And when the sun went down, the Turkish artillery led up, uh, some of them could actually stand up and start to dry out their clothes um, and they fell on top of the world. They didn't feel beaten at all. And so there was great indignation when rumour got around that in, uh, evacuation had been contemplated. And then when the official history came out in 1931, and the story was repeated, there was a round of indignation again. Uh, these blokes weren't beaten at all, and they were quite happy to stick it out. And what casualties did they suffer um, on the 25th of April? Officially, um, not many, a few dozen. But that's because of the chaos and the confusion. There's a catch-all date of the 2nd of May. If you look at like, service records, a lot of men listed as killed on the 2nd of May. They weren't killed on the 2nd of May. That's just a catch-all date because nobody actually knew what had happened to them. And so in that first week, some blokes were fighting for eight days. The landing, Australians seem to be obsessed with the beach and this beach landing, but the landing was a battle in for eight days for some blokes, three or four for most, unless you got back in the first minutes, which also happened. But most of the casualties would have been on the 25th. So I've calculated somewhere around 120 or so killed in that first eight days, most of whom would have been on the 25th. And a battalion at full strength is a thousand, so you know, it's more than 10% of the 
Italians, which is pretty extreme. And when they tried to assemble on the beach on the Wednesday, they landed on Sunday, they tried to get the battalion back together on the Wednesday to try and disentangle the various units and get units back together and so on. Uh, only about 300 or so appeared on the first day. A couple of days later, the numbers were up to about 450. So they'd suffered more than 50% casualties and 10, more than 10% fatalities. And finally, James, where's your book available from? I have no idea. If anyone in Australia is listening to this, ring your bookshops and suggest they might want to get it. Um, but the publisher is Hellion, who's an English company, and it's available through their website. If you're in Australia, Boffins in Western Australia has it, I believe. James, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you so much, and uh, keep up the good work. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>